0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And since 1962, the week in which May 15th occurs was designated as Police Week, where we remember those who've fallen in the line of duty as officers, state, federal, local, in this great country. And today we're honoring the life and death of Detective Mike Doty, an officer from York County, South Carolina. The following clips are from a series of firsthand accounts from the York County Sheriff's Office. Detective Doty didn't know that a domestic violence call on January sixteenth, 2018, would be his last. Robbie brings us the story.
1: It all began with a domestic violence call on January sixteenth, 2018. Here's the first person to receive word of it, dispatcher Donna Blevins.
2: I took a 911 call from a lady that said that her husband was irate and had been pushing her around, not really a full-blown assault at this time. Um, she was telling me that he drinks a lot. Then she says, well, he's going and gotten his gun now. She starts screaming and hollering and obvious assault. He's assaulting her. I was like, oh, what is he going to do with that gun? You know, he's gone with it. You know, all these things are going through my mind and officer safety caller and victim safety is priority and now I'm worried about my guys, I'm worried about my officers because I've got them responding out there to a guy that's beat up his wife, supposed to be the person that he loves most in his world. What is he going to do to my officers? It's just that feeling, you know, it's just a feeling that oh, this ain't good, this ain't good. It just, keep, it just kept getting worse and worse.
1: One of the first responders Detective Joey Wallace.
3: Got there on scene there at the house, um, continued to ride perimeter up and down the road, listening, you know, for anything that we, you know, possibly gunshots or anything, because we really didn't know what was going on with the guy at that point. Just, it's just a weird, you know, not something that I thought that it would end up the way it did, but just that, it's just one of those things. It's like, this is just weird, you know.
1: Lieutenant Heath Clevenger made the call.
4: I sent a page out for two additional team members to come assist, and uh, Mike Doty was
5: the first one to answer.
1: Corporal Stephen Ramsey, Mike's writing partner that night, recalls his first impressions of the evening.
5: When I arrived on the scene initially, I saw that Doty was there too. And I was kind of surprised because Doty doesn't live in the area, but I remember saying to myself, why am I surprised? Doty's always working. <laughs> You know, why am I surprised that Dodie's here? Dodie's always working, always doing something.
4: I put Mike and Ramsey together in a car as a quick reaction in case something happened.
5: And so Doty volunteered to drive. I jumped in the passenger seat with Dodie. And I remember I said something to him and you don't think about these things that you say, but then after the fact, you come back to it. I jumped in, you know, it's nice and warm in his car. And it's freezing outside, and I, look, I looked at Dodie, and I said, hey, man, we lucked out tonight. We're going to get the, the warm seat, you know, not realizing what the events were going to transpire later on.
1: After two hours of searching the neighborhood, Sergeant Randy Clinton and Deputy Cole Green remember something just not being right.
6: And uh, I go to the vehicle, and, and I get the dog out, and I, I, get to, I start talking to Gabby. I talk to Gabby like she, she's a person. Me and her been through a lot together. I said, girl, I said... If you don't want to pick up a track tonight, I said, this be tonight, don't pick a track up And when a man with 34 years experience has an eerie feeling, you learn to trust it
1: Corporal Chris Lorencio recalls being with Clinton and Green
0: I could see that the dog the dog was on a track and it was the, the kind of track it was on, um, it wasn't an old track. You could tell by the mannerisms of the dog, the way she was responding, the way Sarge said, you know
6: we're on them, we're on them. I heard something rattling in the woods. Well, as I heard it rattling in the woods, Gabby shot underneath the fence. Well, we jumped the fence. So and she picked up the track, and she's going up a little, like a horse trail or a little, little trail somebody made in there. She goes about 20 or 30 yards, and she cuts off to her left, and she goes into a little old gully-like, and she noses it. And I said, okay, guys, at one time he was laying right here watching us. At the house.
7: Looking back on it, that's another eerie thing, him just sitting in the woods watching us. We've been sitting out there
6: for two and a half, three hours, and he's just watching us. She makes a circle and comes back out on the trail. Lieutenant Ligon says, hey, I'm in your left back pocket. I said, that's the place to be. And I probably
3: hadn't got that out of my mouth, and we come around the corner, and it's just, he just opened fire on us. He says, pop, pop hit the ground and I heard pop. I
8: could hear the shots being fired and I could feel them. I could feel the, the, the percussion.
2: Three or four officers that were right there with Randy when all that happened and you don't know, you don't know who it was at that time, but you know, they say shots fired and you have an officer down and it really don't matter which one it is. It's just, it runs a, a feeling over you like, you can't explain. I mean, it's just like, you know, you know their wife's name, you know their kid's name, you know where their kids go to school.
1: The suspect escaped and evaded detection, even firing shots at a pursuing helicopter, until the early hours of the next morning, January 17th.
4: We got some information from the helicopter that there was a, a boat behind the house that there was a heat signature coming from.
7: So we... Uh, Came up with a plan to go after the boat.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue with this story. And we like to do it this way sometimes, folks, to let you know that any call, any call, and we've learned it from just a pullover on the side of the road, and out comes the shot in the night, and a domestic dispute case. And my goodness, the dispatcher, and that's Donna Blevin, she put it just right. He beat up his wife, the person he's supposed to love the most. What the heck's going to happen to my guys? And it's so true. And the cops have to go and respond to these calls every time. They don't get to pick and choose. When we come back, remembering Detective Mike Doty, Police Week, here on Our American Stories. And we return to the story of Detective Mike Doty's final night of duty of his life. And when we last left off, the tactical officers were approaching a mysterious boat with an unknown heat signature beneath it. Here are the men who were on the front lines.
4: It was possibility it was going to be dangerous, but, you know, you couldn't let that guy run loose. Nobody thought twice about it, just this is the job. we got to protect people,
2: we got to go get this guy.
9: Mike Doty was already taken off around the corner of the house. There was a deck kind of over here to the left and it's like flat, level with the ground. Well, I noticed that it was the ground was dropping off and it was big enough where somebody could get under there. And as we were coming, I, I remember I took my hand off my rifle and told Mike, let's check under that deck. And I and I did that. And when I pointed, he started shooting us. And I heard the first shot go out. And it wasn't a pause, but it was just that trying to,
4: where's it coming from? We had no idea that that he was underneath the porch prior to that. He was up next to a hot tub. The FLIR can't see through stuff. It just picks up surfaces, so it, it can't see through windows. It can't see through wood. It can't see through walls, nothing like that. No technology that I'm aware of could have
5: told us that before we went around that corner. And then there was that first burst of gunfire, and then a brief pause. And then there was a second burst of gunfire. And then I knew that something wasn't right. Because when you hear a first burst, you think, okay, you know, good guys are firing rounds, everybody's okay, And then when you hear the pause and then the second set of gunfire, you realize that it's a a gunfight.
9: I knew immediately what had happened. Uh, There was no doubt what had happened. Um, I didn't see Mike in that initial, in the initial blast where he shot us. Uh, when I was returning fire in all that stuff was going on, I kind of saw what I initially thought was a pile of clothes, kind of over here. And it was, it was where Mike had gone. And it's,
3: it's all happening so quick. It seemed like it was in slow motion, but it was all happening real quick, so. As soon as I turn the light on on my weapon, I get muzzle flash. Well, I engage the muzzle flash, and it was coming from the deck area. Um, I engage the muzzle flash; everything goes
10: silent. You know, it's not a natural thing to put yourself in a line of fire. Um, you know, and you see it on TV if you watch football when they when they say that a quarterback standing in the pocket and He's getting ready to get sacked, but, yeah, he still throws the football and makes a completion. You know, that's cute. Um, you know, when you're standing in the pocket knowing you're about to get shot and still can fight back, you know. We didn't know where he was.
7: I pushed up. I hit my light, and I saw um, I saw Dodie laying there.
3: I start moving. I cut my light on when I scan the deck. I can see the bad guy under the deck. I holler it out. At that point in time, uh, Lieutenant Clevenger and Grady Gonzalez go, and they cover down him. I looked to my left, and we've got somebody down.
4: I couldn't tell it was him. I could just tell it was one, one of ours from the uniform. And immediately, I started using my weapon light, looking. And over to the right, I picked up the suspect up underneath the house. He yelled, push man down,
7: I got to him, and I'm scanning, I can't find, I can't, I'm just looking, but I'm constantly trying to evaluate Mike, Mike's not responding, I'm rolling, uh, life's gone, you know, you just see it in his eyes, you just, you just know that he's, he's there, but he's not, um, go
11: ahead,
12: 9,
11: go ahead, <laughs>
13: We can't hear you.
11: We need two medics out here at this house right now, ASAP. We got two down, two down. We got the suspect at gunpoint.
7: Yeah, just the guy frozen time, man. He just, he didn't, he didn't want to die, then. I guess,
1: for
3: whatever reason. He didn't want to die then.
1: Emergency Medical Director Chuck Haynes, Sheriff Kevin Tolson, and Officer Trent Ferris.
3: We pull Mike out of, he was almost in line with where uh bad guy was, and we pull him back. I start checking Mike. You know, there's no holes in him or anything. He's unresponsive. I, I give him CPR. He starts breathing. I look. And I notice blood on my hands from where I had done a head tilt on him, and um, realized that he'd been shot in the head. Um, I heard the call on the radio that I never wanted to hear. Officers down. We need medics. So immediately I jumped out of the barricade
14: from my safe area and started running towards where the gunfire was
7: on the other side of the house.
5: first patient I encountered was Mike Doty. Uh, He was brought out and um put on the stretcher and um it was um
9: and it was Mike and it was Mike on the stretcher and then the sheriff just he yells and and he yells and says Mike Mike I just shook his
4: chest a little bit uh yelled Mike 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 um uh, just you know I don't know why I did that maybe I thought I could wake him up or, uh, I wanted to see how, you know, bad maybe he was. I don't know why.
1: And now for Chris Doty, Mike's brother, and the moment he found out.
7: It took somebody, um, multiple people, um, calling my wife, uh, until she finally woke up and she came in, um. And I'll, I'll never forget that, that look on her face um, when she just looked at me and said, "Mike's been hurt. Y- your mind goes from one end to the other, and you don't, and you don't know. So um, But anyways, by the, by the time I got up and got dressed, then of course, my six-year-old was up, and she could she's smart enough to see that there was emotion. And it it wasn't good. By the time we got there, um, you you just walk in, and and it's just, I was focused on one thing, and that was, regardless of his condition, it was, I wanted to see him. You knew from the very beginning, as soon as you saw him that first time, nothing nothing was gonna change. We went in um, an operating room downstairs, um, and just held his hand uh, and then he passed uh, and then you come out and it's you were devastated that that it, it, that he had finally passed but at the same time there was a little bit of relief that you knew that he wasn't suffering anymore. It didn't matter who you are or who you were. If he was, if he was your friend or a family member, it was just his, his pure love, his passion, and his love for his friends and family. That, that is what will be missed to me more than anything
0: else. And my goodness, if you're not shedding some tears right now, there's something wrong with you. And hearing a grown man holding back tears, talking about a pal who, as he put it, well, it's not a natural thing to put yourself in the line of fire. It's not. And by the way, this was a domestic dispute that turned into a straight out old fashioned Western gunfight, but it was real. It was real. His pure love and passion for his family and friends, those were the last words we heard. And that's how I'm sure this detective, Detective Mike Doty, would want to be remembered. Responding to the call of duty, trying to protect a woman from a a man who'd been beating her up. And who else is going to come in? Who else is going to come in but the men in blue? Celebrating Detective Mike Doty's life, it's police week all week long, here on Our American Stories.
3: About that good old way.
0: This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and anytime we can play Alison Krauss in the right context, we do. No one does the American songbook better, straight as an arrow. Let the song do the talking. And it's time for our regular final thought segment. This is when we hear final thoughts from people who are dying, and also final thoughts from folks about those who have passed, a eulogy, a written tribute, anything that stirs the soul. And we've taken a few from this particular gentleman who writes periodically for the Wall Street Journal because he's a doctor. And doctors know firsthand a lot about death. And this is a man who has not insulated himself from the emotional impact of patients that die. And that makes him remarkable. This week's final thoughts feature is a powerful one from Dr. E. Wesley Ely. And again, he's a professor of medicine and critical care at the Nashville VA Medical Center and the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Ealy recently told the story in the Wall Street Journal, and it was called A Swimming Pool in the ICU. He graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen.
8: swimming pool in the ICU? You must be nuts." nuts. The nurse's voice was almost lost among the whooshing ventilator and infusion pumps. Five days earlier we had admitted Benny, a Vietnam veteran, to the intensive care unit of our VA hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. Frail and wrinkled, he had a look of utter confusion and a furrowed brow that would pluck the heartstrings of even the most calloused physician. Decades spent in southern tobacco fields left him looking old enough to remember Hoover's presidency. Double pneumonia and too much sedation made him delirious. As his attending physician, I was thankful for his family. His daughter and son, Laura and Lynn, implored, Take good care of Dad, he's all we have. Seeing him on a ventilator is terrifying, they said, but we believe in miracles. While loving, such a mindset could become problematic since their father's situation had the makings of a fatal illness despite our best technology. With antibiotics and fluids, Benny improved dramatically and was taken off the ventilator several days later. That same night though, a massive stroke paralyzed his entire left side and he went back on life support. We quickly administered clot-busting medicine and he rallied, remarkably regaining movement of his left arm and leg. The following day, the intern reported, his delirium is cleared, and he's mouthing words around the endotracheal tube despite this wicked aspiration pneumonia. I sensed an unexpected window of opportunity. We revisited Benny's life goals in light of what had happened and spoke directly about the big picture. With his children looking on, I held Benny's hand and looked him in the eyes. Choosing my words based on what I knew about his background and the family's expectation of miracles, I said, Benny, just like tobacco plants eventually wither and wilt, so do we. You have improved in some ways, but overall, you're very weak. How can we serve you best? The next morning, Laura and Lynn were upbeat, which confused me since Benny looked weaker than ever. They pointed to words on a whiteboard in the room, explaining they were Benny's goals. Stable vital signs? Baptism. I spotted Kelly, our charge nurse, smiling like a cat who'd swallowed a canary. In her arms, she clutched a box containing a large vinyl swimming pool. First, I made sure this was actually Benny's request and not the family's. My next thought was that we'd have a chaplain anoint him with holy water in his bed. But Laura disagreed. Jesus wasn't sprinkled, Doc. He was dumped. A senior physician protested that the patient was on a ventilator and said he'd never seen a bedside baptism like this in 50 years of practice. There was no shortage of opinions about whether this was appropriate, safe, or even possible. A large area next to Benny's bed was cleared, and an electric pump inflated the pool. When a large multi-person bucket brigade proved too difficult... An engineer rigged dialysis tubing to circulate the pool with a stream of warm water. Benny was then hoisted high into the air via a patient transfer lift, and the ventilator was unplugged before he was lowered into the pool. Lynn gently took his father, the man who'd showed him how to farm, into his arms. Following the cherished Christian tradition, he slowly submerged Benny's head Completely under the water, saying, Dad, I baptize you in the name of the God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
15: Amazing Grace. How sweet
1: the sound that saved
8: On cue, the palliative care social worker began belting out Amazing Grace. The rest of us stood frozen in time. First out of the water was blue corrugated ventilator tubing. Then his face appeared around the breathing tube. Benny's huge smile seemed to say, better late than never. When he died a week later, Laura implored me to tell other people about her dad, hoping his experience would show them that we can all become strong through our weakness. In fact, I've seen scores of patients and families use profound outer wasting as a catalyst for deep inner renewal. The most two important frames of our life are birth and death. We typically associate baptism with the former, yet Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism to indicate the formative next step that dying represents for our journey. The ICU team's bold yet careful response to Benny's unusual request taught me an enduring lesson regarding sympathy versus empathy. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone. Empathy is feeling with someone. In all the surrounding insanity of the hospital that day, diving deeply into Benny's life through his baptism on the breathing machine allowed all of us to be reborn too. Being with him in that pool And rising with him out of it, we walked into others' lives better prepared to serve them.
0: And it doesn't get better than that, folks. And that's why we love running these stories. Uh, You know, you got to hold back a tear listening to that. And I love that definition of empathy and sympathy. You know, Bono said of Johnny Cash when he was buried, Johnny Cash doesn't sing to the damned. He sings with the damned. And I think that's why Cash was so loved. And God bless the folks who did this amazing thing. Uh, and most folks in most hospitals just wouldn't have bothered. Too difficult. Splash a little water on his head. That's it. That's all we got. We'll end here as we started. Our final thought segment.
3: Allison Kraus. crown good
8: Lord show me the way oh sinners let's go down let's go down
9: come on down oh sinners let's go down
3: down in the river to pray
15: as I went
3: down in the river to pray studying about
0: that is Our American Stories and today we bring you the story of Tom Ryan. And Tom is a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. Tom had an unusual upbringing. He grew up on Long Island, New York, living behind a funeral parlor run by his family. And he wrote a book about it entitled Love in the Ashes. Today we bring you the second of his stories for us. Something tells me there are going to be a lot more. This one is called A Grave Escape. While not a love story like the last,
11: it's just as wild. Here's Tom. I was there on Saturday morning when the sheriff arrived to talk to Grandma. It was the day after the big snowstorm. My folks were away and I had stayed with Grandma overnight. At age 10, I was too young to stay home alone, but staying at Grandma's was not too cool either, because, you see, she ran a funeral home. Sometimes there were dead bodies only a few steps from the living room at the back of the house where we watched TV. It was hard to get too relaxed when I looked over at the dark doorway leading to the bodies. That Friday night, There was a very old lady being waked in one of the chapels. Mrs. Jackson, a friend of grandma's who had died of cancer. The sheriff sat at the kitchen table with his notebook in front of him. He asked grandma if anything unusual had happened the last night because they were searching for an escaped convict from a prison two towns away. He is a murderer and very dangerous the sheriff said. They were setting up roadblocks to try to catch him. Grandma didn't answer directly but said, we have a funeral going out this morning, old Mrs. Jackson. We had to put her in a closed casket because the cancer was so bad. Will the hearse and the limos be able to get to the cemetery, Grandma asked. Yes, the sheriff replied. The road is open to the cemetery. What about anything happening last night? Grandma gave me a stern look that he couldn't see and told him nothing had happened. It was real quiet, she said. I didn't say a word, but as soon as the sheriff left, I asked her what was going on. It wasn't like grandma to lie. She just shook her head and started to cry. I thought back about last night and remembered that shortly before dark, Grandma kept looking out the side window on the driveway every few minutes since she was expecting a delivery of new caskets. Suddenly, there were yellow headlights shining on the snow outside the window, and a loud knocking came on the side door where the caskets were brought in. Fred, the driver, shouted, I have to hurry before I get snowed in. He had unloaded two caskets and started on another one. Wait, Grandma said, I only ordered two, not three. I have to leave this one too, Fred said. I'll never get to the funeral home in the next town, and I don't want the weight on my truck. Okay, Grandma said, if it helps you out. After he was gone, Grandma closed up tight, My folks were supposed to call to see how things were, but the phone wasn't working. The TV weatherman said the lines were down all over and roads were closed, so we were all by ourselves. After a while, I started to fall asleep, and Grandma helped me upstairs and put me into a soft feather bed. She left the door open a little so some light came in. I remember that I fell asleep, but woke up later when I thought I heard voices downstairs. I had started to get out of bed, but it was so cold, I crawled back in. The next morning, I asked Grandma about it, but she said I must have dreamed it. Later in the morning, the men who worked for Grandma came in and then loaded the casket into the hearse. When my folks came to pick me up, I saw Grandma holding onto my father's arm and talking to him. I heard her say, I need your help. She took him into the office and closed the door. I thought I heard her crying. It was five years later when Grandma died that my folks told me the real story of what had happened that Friday night. It seemed that the voices I thought I had heard were those of Grandma and the escaped convict. The caskets that were delivered that night were made by prison labor, and the convict, with the nickname of Rabbit, had hidden in one of those empty caskets. When the delivery man had left, Rabbit had opened the inside latch and let himself out of the casket. He didn't know, however, that Grandma had fallen asleep in her big chair in the living room, and she woke up startled and scared to see him standing near the fireplace, holding a large knife he had taken from the embalming room. Threatening her to silence by holding the knife under her throat, he asked for car keys and money, but Grandma didn't have a car and didn't drive. (laughs) When he realized that the storm had blocked the roads and there was no phone service, he asked Grandma when someone was coming with a car. She told him that there was one funeral schedule for the next morning if the roads were open and men coming with a hearse and limousine. When he saw some of my things on the couch and found out that I was upstairs, Grandma pleaded with him to let me sleep. She would help him. in the casket with Mrs. Jackson and be taken away in the hearse the next morning to the cemetery. He could then sneak out of the casket when it was left in the cemetery storeroom for a few minutes until the family arrived. Rabbit didn't like the idea at all, especially getting into the coffin with a dead lady. He decided that he had no other choice, but he made it very clear to Grandma that if she was fooling him, and he was caught, he would escape again and kill not only her, but also all of her family. Grandma was terrified by this evil man. It was arranged that early on Saturday morning, Rabbit would get into the casket, and then Grandma would close it and latch it shut. He was very hesitant, especially when he saw and smelled old Mrs. Jackson. But finally, he climbed in, holding his nose and threatening Grandma with a painful death if things didn't work out. He also ordered Grandma to get him some hot coffee in a thermos so that he could drink it when it got cold in the casket. And she did so just before closing the lid. The plan did work. When the man came and took the casket away, and loaded it into the hearse. Grandma hadn't said anything about Rabbit being in the casket. After his private meeting with Grandma, my dad had immediately called the sheriff and arranged to stop in and see him. The police still hadn't found Rabbit, despite the roadblocks and searches of the nearby forest. They were mystified as to how he could have disappeared so completely. Sheriff, my dad said, as you know, this man was a murderer who would stop at nothing to escape. He told the sheriff how Rabbit had hidden in the casket at the prison and had ended up in Grandma's funeral home. He also explained how Rabbit had threatened Grandma and her family, so she was forced to help him escape in Mrs. Jackson's casket. What? said the sheriff. Why didn't she call me as soon as he was in the casket? I could have nabbed him right then and there. She was too scared, sheriff. But my dad continued a little smile playing around his lips and pride in his voice. She was also smart enough to have slipped a large amount of sleeping pills into the coffee she gave him to drink in the casket. The sheriff thought for a moment and said, "'Wait, if Rabbit drank that coffee, "'heck, he might have been buried alive in the casket with Mrs. Jackson.' The sheriff almost shouted as he got his phone out, "'We'll have to dig up the casket immediately. "'If we find him in the casket, "'I may have to take Grandma into custody. "'She could be in a lot of trouble.' "'Wait,' my dad said. "'Wait a minute, sheriff, before you do anything.' Wait, no, no, we can't lose any more time. That man may still be alive. If there was enough air in the casket, maybe he is. The sheriff was now calling to his assistance as he rose from his chair. Get the car ready, ready to roll, and call the coroner. No, sheriff, please listen, my father replied quietly. Sit down a minute. You see, there is no casket. No casket? The sheriff looked confused. Of course there was a casket. They had the funeral, and it was buried this morning. No, my father replied quietly. You see, Sheriff, Mrs. Jackson's last wishes were that she be cremated.
0: My goodness, it does not get better than that, folks, and that's why I say something tells me we'll be hearing more from Tom Ryan And by the way, we want your stories, and as you can tell, we don't discriminate. 95, 10 years old, the North, the South, the East, the West, Christian, atheist, we don't care. We love a good story. Tom Ryan's story, his grandma's story, my goodness, poor rabbit's story, here on Our American Stories.
1: Hi, this is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories and you can find them on our But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to your at That's your story at oAnetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it.
0: This is Our American Stories. We tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we love hearing stories from you. Send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Some of our very best have come from our listeners. And we love to tell stories about great acts of charity and generosity and from people of every walk of life, from every
10: walk of life.
0: And now you're about to hear one of those stories.
10: The holidays are supposed to be a time of love and cheer. But as we all know, things don't always happen the way they should. Especially not for the 14,000 children in Michigan placed in foster care.
14: We start in June. We finalize the whole deal the first full weekend in December.
10: That's Mike Papia. And for his day job, he's the Global Logistics Manager for Guardian Industries, a subsidiary of Coke Industries. And his night job, well, to about half the state of Michigan's foster care population, he's a Santa of sorts, spending about seven months to make sure that the foster kids across Michigan would have a less lonely Christmas.
14: 6,774 children or 20,322 gifts, personalized gifts, were delivered to children in Michigan. We've been doing this for 47 years.
10: This project, Operation Good Cheer, started in 1971, and about 30 years ago, while Mike was working for GM, he decided to give Operation Good Cheer a hand when it consisted of only one truck that delivered to only a few foster homes.
14: What perked my, like I say, what perked my interest. I never thought there was that many needy children in Michigan, and I'm surprised at the time. It wasn't that many children, at least at the time, 30 years ago. I didn't think, okay. And as I kept getting more involved each year, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm going, I can't, I couldn't imagine the problem in Michigan being that big, that there, that we had that many children, foster care children, needy children. Then I started digging into it, and I understood. Some of the things as a child that I, that I was raised on, you know, the holidays and things like that, they were missing, and and I thought it was just a good cause.
10: And now with the help of Mike's logistics expertise, they serve roughly half of the state's foster care population, a feat that not even Santa could do without the help of his elves.
14: I bet you we have 2,000 volunteers. The majority of volunteers come out because they want to come out to help somebody. There's, there's a need... There's children in Michigan that that are foster home children or living not in a a real home, a home that I consider a real home, not with parents that I consider parents because they don't have parents. And they have a need to bring them a little bit of joy during Christmas, so there's people out here to do it because they want to do it. They want to help them. Of the volunteers that I see, and I see them over and over, year after year, they come back. Um, we get volunteers that come up from Indiana. Um, I get a couple of volunteers that come over from Illinois. They've been doing this years, years and years back when they lived here and they continue to come back. I get friends and family that show up year after year saying, you know, we're here to help children and it's a need that has to be filled and, and we need to share and we need to give of our time to make this happen. And it ranges anywhere from corporate volunteers to Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Civil Air Patrol, retirees that come out. When you see the amount of people that volunteer and the size of the group and the age of the group, it's everybody and anybody.
10: (laughs) That's right. Mike just said Civil Air Patrol. Not only does he have truck drivers amongst his ranks, but pilots, too.
14: We move the, the gifts either by airplane or by truck to agencies and airports around the state of Michigan.
10: Coordinating 2,000 people, 250 airplanes, and 34 semi-trucks.
14: It's pretty chaotic and uh, I'm a professional logistics person so I'm trying to make this work on the size that we're at at this point. So it uh, it becomes a little chaotic, but we get everybody to work together as a team uh, the volunteers, and uh, we get the job done.
10: A big job for a worthy cause.
14: Let's bring a little bit of joy to their to them. Let's, let's get them out of the mood of being a foster child, letting them know that somebody cares about them. There's people out there in Michigan, there's a lot of caring people in Michigan, a lot of caring companies in Michigan that want to try to make their lives better. As I explained to the group, I says, you're looking at gifts and you're looking at a bag, but every bag with three gifts in it represents a child. Treat it that way. Don't don't drag it along the ground. Don't rip the papers. It's the way you would want to have Christmas. That's the way you'd want to get a gift from your parents. And we're sort of like just trying to fill a need in the state, and I'm, and I'm sure other states in the United States have the same problem. The foster program is a great program, but maybe it just can't do everything, and we're helping it out a little bit.
10: While Mike conducts this operation like a Christmas symphony, it's the truck drivers on delivery day who channel all of that Christmas spirit to the children in need.
14: They get to deliver the gifts to the orphanages and see the kids. So they're experiencing what a lot of us don't get to see every day. Okay, they're seeing the reciprocants, they're seeing the smiles, they're seeing the excitement, and they keep coming back year after year after year. They volunteer to come back on their own time, not getting paid by their trucking companies. They dress up in some way Santa Claus, hats on. One of them brings um, his best friend along, and she becomes Mrs. Claus. Um, I got a couple of them that put lights on their trucks and put reindeer horns on their trucks and uh, red noses. Um, They're carried away because they enjoy doing it. There's somebody in need, and it's the time of the season to give back and share and make someone's life happy and that's that's all we're trying to do is help the children
0: and what a beautiful story that's Mike Papia and the organization is operation good cheer go to cfsm.org to help that cfsm.org to help 6700 children who delivered personalized gifts over Christmas, 2,000 volunteers, and a caravan of planes and trucks delivering those presents. Three gifts in a bag, and they represent a child. And my goodness, as Mike said, treat those bags that way. And by the way, these are the acts of generosity that are being performed all over this country all the time. The ultimate media bias isn't a political one, folks. It's for bad news. And we're here to deliver the good news about this country, too. Mike Papia's story, Operation Good Cheer's story, a Michigan story, an American story, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series, which is sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working hard to perpetuate policies that help small businesses become big ones. And as we tell you over and over again, without small businesses, where do the tax dollars come to support our firemen, our police, and everything else that we care about, including the safety net here in our great country? And today, Aubrey Riggle brings us the story of someone you likely don't know, but will be glad to have met.
12: I got married at 16, and I had my first child when I was 17, and my next child at 18, and my next child at 19. So I ended up with three babies, and finally my aunt told me to call the last one caboose and let it be the end.
13: You're listening to Marcia Taylor, likely the first woman to own and operate a trucking company, Bennett International Group. But before she was a leading businesswoman, she was a young mom of three babies, growing a startup business into what is now one of the biggest trucking companies in America.
12: I grew up in Southern Illinois on a small farm with my mother and father and a brother that was seven years younger than I was. My mother always had a big garden and she had a lot of chickens and I would help her can. And My dad always had a lot of wheat and soybeans and corn, so it would help him in the fields and it was a great way to grow up. When I was 14, my father, he had been sick and he just uh, got up and just passed out and I mean he just, right then he just died. I left my mother and I and, and my little brother Duane with a farm. It was just a devastating time for me. I ended up being the kind of the responsible one in the family. I married really early. I think I was being a little rebellious. My husband and I lived on the farm, and he worked on the railroad, and I was a housewife. Neither one of us was really ready to be married, nor ready for the responsibility of having three small children and my husband started drinking and it just became a very, very abusive relationship, both physically and mentally. Well, I knew I was going to have to try to get away to get out of that situation. Some of the people in our neighborhood had bought the rights to this small trucking company in Georgia. I'd said, well, you know, I'd like to go to Georgia. and uh, So they there was an opening and I jumped at the chance. I knew nothing about trucking. I, I mean, literally nothing. But I knew it might be a way for me to get the children and to move to a different location. We loaded everything we had up with a truck and a 40-foot van, and all of our belongings took up about 10 feet of that van. And we moved to Georgia and moved into a mobile home and was able to, at that point, file for divorce. I was working, and I had, the children were like the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Actually, the man that I went to work for, we ended up getting together, and uh, we ended up getting married. My mother had not been in the best of health. We called her and asked her if she wanted to come to Georgia and live with us and help with the children so I could really focus on work. So we worked really hard, and in 1974, We had the opportunity to buy this little small trucking company that had 15 trucks and 30 trailers and we only had like $500 in cash to be able to start this business but they sold it to us on credit. In order for us to make payroll I would do all the billing on Wednesday, get everything billed and one of us would take all of our invoices and meet one of our drivers halfway. Our driver would pick up the invoices, take them to our customer, and he would process them, write a check. We'd do the same thing. The driver we'd meet is halfway, pick up the check, deposit it in the bank, and so I could make payroll on Friday. Our customer helped save us all through that time by getting our invoices processed so I could make payroll. I don't think you could start a business with $500 and do what we did now because of the way that the industry is and the way that people want to pay your invoices. Now, customers wanna wait 60, 120 days before they pay you. It was a difficult time, but I look back and it it was a good time. We were working to build this company together.
13: Marcia was finally getting the business on solid footing until the ground was taken out from under her.
12: My husband, JD, Uh, was a heavy smoker and it was really affecting his health. We had gone to Houston, Texas to look at a rail site for one of our customers and while we were there, I saw this billboard and it was advertising a stop smoking clinic. He knew he needed to stop smoking because it was causing him to begin to have emphysema. So we went to this uh, smoking clinic that was attached to one of the large hospitals. They injected him in the nose and in his ear and in his throat. And we went home, and the middle of the next week, we were at work, and and my husband said, you know, I I don't feel well. I think I need to go home. So he went home, and whenever I got there, I went into our bedroom to check on him, and he was just burning up. So I said, I think we need to take you to the emergency room, because he never got sick. So they started checking him, and his blood pressure kept dropping. So uh, they came and they said, well, I think we're going to take him up to intensive care. We just want to see what's going on. The next morning at about 6 o'clock, they came out and they said, I want you to prepare yourself because I don't think he's going to make it. And I was just like, what, how could this be? He was in the hospital for three days to where his body just started shutting down. Through those injections, he had developed a gram-negative bacteria. They had injected this bacteria into his body. They had to first find out what kind of injections he had gotten, which really wasn't much of anything. Then they had to discover what this bacteria was, and and they, they just couldn't stop it. And they took him into surgery, and he basically coded in surgery, and he died the next morning, so all at once, I was just kind of left with this business that we had finally had gotten a bank that would take a chance on us and had gotten a small credit line and Now this is back in the eighties, and there really wasn't any women that was in the that was in the transportation business, certainly nobody running a trucking company. And I was really worried that the bank would call our note because they wouldn't trust, you know, a woman. And I have three small children that I still have to take care of, and my mom. But, you know, I just had to put all my faith in God that whatever was supposed to happen, He would see me through. My drivers all just kind of gathered around. There was 30 people that worked here at that time. And everybody just said, look, we can do this. We just went to work. I bet I work, I don't know, 60, 70 hours a week. It took a lot because we're not in a business that's an eight to five business. You don't turn the responsibility off whenever you go home.
13: Through her faith, the support of her employees, and her dedication to the company, Marcia pulled through. But her children were still small, and her success came at a cost.
12: I feel guilty that. I didn't get to spend more time with my children when they were growing up. I wish I could go back and change that. I mean, my mom was there, thankfully, and she always made sure that there was a meal on the table, that they got to the ball games, that they got wherever they needed to get to. But I feel like I missed a lot. Now I've gotten to work with my children now, you know, and so I'm very fortunate in that way. When they were small, they would come to work with me. They always had to be involved. When they got sick, they slept on a cot behind my desk. They really learned it from the ground up. It's just been a great blessing to me to be able to work with my family and children. Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, it's not always easy to work with your mother. And I'll say, well, you know, it's not always easy to work with your kids either. But even my grandchildren, I don't get to spend near as much time with my grandchildren as I'd like to, even though I have four of them that work here. It's had a lot of ups and downs, but God's always seen me through.
0: And we've been listening to Marcia Taylor, and she's the owner of the trucking company Bennett International Group. What a story thus far, and we're going to hear more on the other side. And my goodness, now we know, now you know, and we try to do this for you to empathize with the people meeting payroll because it's no small task. And it's a heck of a responsibility to be responsible, not just for yourself and your family, but for dozens of other families and to have that pressure and the price that's paid. I mean, she had sacrifices to make and regrets and none of these success stories are Pollyanna here on our American stories. Everything comes with a price folks, everything. And when we come back more of Marcia Taylor's story, an American dreamer story, my goodness, as good a one as we've had here on this show. After these commercial messages, more with our American story. To Marcia Taylor's story here on Our American Stories and as always again our American Dreamers series are always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network fighting for small business owners across this great country and when we last left off well Marcia knew she had to differentiate herself from all of her competitors in order to survive and so she did
12: We started to say what could be our specialty what can we do that that limits our competition. Our niche is things that are a little bigger, a little heavier, that require tarps, that require a little bit more work to haul. Anything that's too large to be um, hauled, that needs to be driven, you know, we'll put a driver in it, you name it. So today we're made up of 14 different companies that all do different types of transportation. We have about 3,200 drivers and owner-operators and about 400 different offices. We're an international company. We do a lot of ag equipment, air conditioners, rockets. We do a lot of work for the government. One of the newest ventures that we've just gotten into is A and e which is ammunition, explosives, so forth. There's only 17 carriers allowed to move AA&E. We just did the Mercedes-Benz stadium and uh, the big falcon that's out in front. We deliver that falcon. We're international. We um, import and export and we bring a lot of wine in from Argentina. We export a lot of sweet potatoes. We move a lot of manufactured housing and when there's some sort of a national disaster if they require manufactured housing that we will get involved with FEMA to help move those units.
13: In fact, they're the largest mover of manufactured housing, better known as mobile homes, in America. They're the largest mover for the United States Department of Defense. And they're also the largest driveway company in the country, meaning their pickup truck drivers deliver upwards of 450 campers and RVs across the country every single week. And it doesn't end there.
12: We're very involved in oil and gas and do a lot with the wind industry. We've moved big windmills that are being installed in all the wind farms both by hauling and through our crane and rigging. Four years ago, we started a crane and rigging company. We have cranes up to 900 ton, and so that's a very niche market. I think God has just always led us where we needed to go.
13: Nearly 71% of all freight moved in the United States goes on trucks. Without truck drivers, our economy would come to a standstill. Yet the American Trucking Association figures that 60,000 more drivers are needed by trucking companies. And that number is predicted to reach 100,000 in just the next few years.
12: The trucking industry is always up and down. I mean, there's always a lot of things going on. But probably one of the, the most difficult things is finding uh, really qualified drivers that want to get into this industry. When you do have a driver come to you, you want them to enjoy working for you and you want them to stay. Our retention rate is about 39%, which is really very good. A lot of companies' retention rate is over 100%.
13: That means her competitors are losing all of their drivers for the year, and then some.
12: It's a tough business, but we've got a lot of drivers that's been with us for a lot of years. They get used to where they like to run, they get used to what they like to do, and you know they stay with us. Our business is usually one of the leading indicators of what's happening in the economy. We're usually the first to see it pick up and the first to see it slow down. Over the years, there's been numerous times that we weren't sure if you know, we were gonna have enough money. Whenever the bottom fell out of everything in the 80s, we had made like a million dollars at that point in time, which was a lot of money for us. And it's like the recession hit, and it's just like everything just stopped. In two months, we had lost the million we had made, and another million. We never really wanted to lay anybody off. We worked some flexible hours, and people that could would maybe take one day off, and then some of the people that couldn't afford to take a day off, somebody else would give them their day. And so we were able to make our way through it, by not having to lay anybody off.
13: And in the 2008 recession?
12: Same thing, you just kind of buckle in and you just manage your balance sheet. And one thing about our business, another reason I say God is so good, is because we do different types of things. It has always seemed like when one thing was really slow or bad, one piece of the industry, something else was good. When things were so slow, we ended up getting a huge contract that saw us through. We've always come out of recessions and done well. Last year was one of the best years we have ever had in our industry, simply because I think there was so much pent-up business out there. You could just feel it. We did over a half a billion dollars. We're pretty excited about that. That was a big milestone for us.
13: With such a big milestone in the books, does Marcia, who is now 74, have any intention of retiring soon. Like most successful business owners, absolutely not.
12: This is my family. There's people that's been here for many, many years. I can't imagine not being here. About three or four years ago, I guess, my kids kind of said, you know, we're tired. We've been working a lot. And they've been working a lot of years. They said, we're ready to retire. And I said, you know, I, OK, we'll think about maybe selling off some, keeping some. But then I thought, it's not fair to my grandchildren their work here. This is a good place for them. And we just need to work as long as we can. Also, I firmly believe that you should get up every day and work to make a difference. I feel like I can do that
13: here. And not just through her business, but through her foundation, Marcia has made a difference. About five years ago,
12: we started a foundation based on Christian values where we would give back 10% of our earnings each year. One of the things we do is we have a friend that runs a camp in um, Old Town, Florida, it's a Christian camp. And we take a week, every year we call it Camp Bennett, and we sponsor Chloe's children or grandchildren. And then we also sponsor kids that just maybe wouldn't have the opportunity to go to the camp. Every year there's usually like 40 or 50 kids will be saved and several they'll be baptized. That's one of the things that we enjoy. We just sponsored several wreaths across America. We put 15,000 wreaths on the graves at Andersonville a Cemetery. From back during the Civil War, Maybe there are old, old gravesites that there's nobody left that remembers those gravesites. Drivers will deliver wreaths to the cemetery and get people wreaths to place on these gravesites. It's, it's a very moving and it's a wonderful way to honor some of our veterans. We try to use this company to help show Christian love. I definitely feel that this is a ministry. It allows us to reach people that we might not reach otherwise both through our foundation and then just every day. I had a uh, vice president of safety, rough guy. But sometimes his language wasn't the best. Just being here, being in this environment, us saying prayers before meetings ended up, he came to Christ. And he had told me many times that he thought if he was not working in this environment, that probably would not have happened. Being able to use this company to help people is the greatest sense of fulfillment.
0: And that was Marcia Taylor. What a voice. What a life story. Three babies by 19, small town life in southern Illinois, which is like small town rural life everywhere in this great country. But it made her who she was. A really difficult first marriage, a divorce. She took a chance, moved to another state with not much money. Gave a shot at a company and a business she didn't even know. And my goodness, she knows it now. $500 million in business. But that's not what she's most proud of. You heard it. Keeping the people together through a recession, not laying people off, and transmitting her values through work. And it is one of the great ways we do it, folks. What we do is often who we are and what we make of it. Marcia Taylor's story, an American dreamer's story, as good as any we've done, here on Our American Story. continue Our conversation with author Tim Harford, who writes about economics in a way, well, it's just storytelling. And you're in our American stories, that's what we care about. And his book, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, is chock full of great stories. And we're going to drill down on just a few. Tim, you've said that 50 inventions in your book were not chosen based on some perfect measure of importance, but instead, these are 50 inventions that. Most of us just don't give much thought to, but my goodness, they changed everything. One such invention is the limited liability company. Without the LLC, modern life would be very different. Talk about that
15: yes, and some thinkers believe that they're they're more important than say electricity or the railways or these these amazing um, physical technologies and and the reason being uh, the limited liability company was very important in allowing companies to raise money. Um, so the, what is essentially true about a limited liability company is that um, if, um, if you and I say, decide we're, we're going to um, invest in a company and we, you know, we, we decide we're going to put $10,000 into a company and try and get it all started, we may lose our $10,000. But we can't then be pursued for any more money. Like I've put my ten thousand dollars in you can't get twenty thousand dollars out of me or fifty thousand dollars or a million dollars if the company does something wrong yeah my yeah. my liability is limited to the amount of money I originally put in and so having this protection for investors made it more attractive for investors to to put money into companies. It made it easier for companies to raise money because the investors knew there was there was a limit to their downside and that in turn was important because it meant that suddenly you could raise money from people who didn't know you previously you would only be able to raise money from very close friends from family because their liability would be be unlimited if you did something stupid with their money there was no end to the amount of trouble that they could have So, so limited liability enables companies to go out and raise money from a large number of strangers to saying we've got a great business plan, and if you if you give us some money we will we will invest it wisely, and you know you'll make profits. You think about companies such as um General Electric trying to set up an entire electricity grid, or you think about the railway companies. I mean, how is a railway company supposed to make money? You've got to build an entire railway and you've got to put the trains on it before you can collect a single dime from any railway passenger. Clearly, you've got to raise a huge amount of money. So the limited liability structure allowed that to be possible. And so you you could have these huge infrastructure projects, water, uh, railways, electricity. There have been a lot of downsides. Of course, a lot of people have been ripped off by limited liability companies, companies taken too much risk, People get enthusiastic. They pour too much money in, bubbles. Um, There's a long, long history of people being ripped off. But overall, I think you would say this was a very important step in the creation of of major uh, multinational companies. They really couldn't exist without limited liability.
0: Indeed. I mean, capital is the oxygen of innovation. I mean, how do you innovate without capital?
15: Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Otherwise, you've just otherwise got very, very small companies or, um, or you have to already be a billionaire to set up something major.
0: That's right. And let's talk about concrete. This was fascinating to me. Uh, why does concrete matter and how did it help develop modern life?
15: Well, it matters because it is ubiquitous. It's probably the substance that we humans use more of than anything else with the exception of water. There's a lot of concrete in the world. Uh, it's a very, very flexible, very versatile building material um, from the point of view of an engineer or, or an architect. Uh, actually, the trouble with concrete is once it's built, there's nothing you can do with it. You can't change it. It's not like bricks. Bricks, you can, you can take down a, a brick wall or a brick house and reuse the bricks. But for a structural engineer, for an architect, it's a very, very... Um, robust flexible and inexpensive material and so we pour a lot of it concrete bridges concrete skyscrapers it's everywhere um, there is an amazing fact that i checked three times and then some colleagues of mine at the bbc said they didn't believe and so they they fact-checked me and they came back and said that no, you were right all along tim and that fact is that In three years recently, I think it's 2008, 2009, 2010, I forget exactly, but three recent years, China poured more concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century. It gives you a sense of the the building boom going on in in China and how incredibly important this material is. So, I mean, that's why it matters, because it's everywhere. Um, Where did it come from? We've had... Concrete for a very long time, probably 10,000 years. It's been discuss, uh, discovered in um, settlements in Turkey 8, 10, maybe 12,000 years ago. The Romans used a lot of it. The, um, the Parthenon, if you ever have the chance to go to Rome, there's this uh, ancient church, it's nearly 2,000 years old, called the Parthenon. It's made of concrete. And if you go in and you look up, it's, it is recognizably concrete. It reminds me a little bit of the Washington, D.C. metro system. It's quite striking. Um, and the, the big leap forward uh, was in the 1800s, uh, a French gardener called Joseph Mernier was trying to make concrete flower pots. And they didn't really work until he realized he could reinforce them with a steel mesh, And there's this amazing thing about the the steel. The steel and the concrete, as it happens, expand and contract when they get hotter and colder at almost exactly the same rate. Um, So this is very unusual for two materials. But it means you can put steel reinforcement inside concrete uh, and it won't instantly crack when when the concrete heats up. It makes the concrete vastly stronger under certain kinds of stress. And it means you can make concrete skyscrapers, concrete bridges, uh, which, which would have been impossible. So um, it's a remarkable material. We are maybe storing up trouble for ourselves because um, some of those reinforcements are starting to get exposed to the elements. They're starting to rust. That makes the concrete way, way um, weaker. And so you see these dreadful bridge collapses that happen from time to time. That's catching up with us. And uh, it's probably gonna catch up with China too let 's
0: talk about index funds. I, I was uh, stunned to see it here, but then I read the chapter, and my goodness, it belongs here, doesn't it?
15: I think so. Paul Samuelson, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics uh, a few decades ago. Paul Samuelson said that the index fund ranks alongside wine, cheese, and the wheel as a, an invention of human history. I mean that may be um, slightly exaggerating things, but it has saved the index fund has saved a lot of people a lot of money and the basic idea of an index fund is you want to invest in the stock market rather than pay some expert to pick stocks for you, um, for which they will charge you handsomely. Why not just invest in the the market as a whole? Just say, well, if the market as a whole goes up, I make money. If the market as a whole goes down, I make money. But I'm not going to worry too much about picking stocks. And perhaps surprisingly, that turns out to be really just as good as paying an expert and cheaper there's lots and lots of evidence that suggests that um it's very hard for expert stock pickers to do much better than than just whatever the market is doing so this was observed by paul samuelson this nobel prize-winning economist and he wrote an an essay saying um somebody should invent a kind of fund that just invests in the index what then happened? This is probably the first time in human history this has ever happened. Is somebody paid attention to something that an academic economist said, <laughs> and said, you know what, this is a good idea. His name was John Bogle, and um, Bogle had just set up his own um, investment company, and um, he was looking for low-cost investment strategies. And he came across Samuelson's challenge, and he said, well, I'm I'm going to develop an index fund and at first he was a laughing stock other wall street funds criticized him scorned him accused him of being a communist accused him of being unpatriotic because you know Americans Americans aren't willing to settle for the average they, they, they want to do better and initially nobody invested nobody showed up but slowly 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 uh his fund got more and more investors and It's called Vanguard, well, the company is called Vanguard. It is one of the largest fund managers on the planet. Uh, And this strategy now of just passively investing in the market is hugely popular. And it's all down to to Bogle and Samuelson. And I I saw an estimate that something like a trillion dollars, if I remember rightly, something like a trillion dollars of investors' money has been saved that would otherwise have been paid in fees to Wall Street over the last 40 years.
0: And that's winners and losers for sure. There are the winners being the public and the losers being the experts. And I might add, it allows ordinary people to go into the markets and just play the economy over a long period of time without the worry of picking winners and losers themselves.
15: Absolutely. And it's how, how I do it. I mean, I write for the Financial Times. I'm a, I'm an economist. I have quite a keen interest in markets. But I know enough to know, I don't think I can beat the market. So I, I use, as it happens, I'm not paid to endorse them. As it happens, I use Vanguard index funds. They seem as good as any. And um, you know, it's the same performance, but for lower fees. So uh, if a Financial Times columnist and... Um, Professional, professional economist is saying, uh, I can't do better than a passive index fund. I think the same is true of most of the people listening to this program. There may be a few who can do better, but uh, a lot of people would do better just putting their money in the market and uh, crossing their fingers.
0: And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And to hear more of Tim's book and the other stories... In this remarkable book, go to ouramericannetwork.org. The stories are just so good. All of these stories about modern invention, modern life, modern business, here on Our American Stories.